Hi, this is Ann Robertson, the pastor of the United Methodist Church of Westford in Westford, Massachusetts. This is the sermon from May 7th. The title of it is Us and Them. And it came about because of all the illegal immigration issues. I'd been hearing some things both on the news and in personal conversations that were disturbing me and some disturbing trends. And when I started hearing it come out in confirmation class also, I really decided that I needed to address it from the pulpit. So um, that's what us and them is about. And I hope you find some way of connecting with it. I apologize for the sound. One, I'm battling trying to keep my voice, as you can maybe even hear here, but also on Sunday we were recording some music and used other recording mics to get the music, and so the sermon isn't directly taken off of the pulpit microphone, so it's a little echoey, so I apologize for that. But thanks for dropping in, and hope to see you in church. Please remain again in the reading of the gospel, which comes from the gospel of John, in the fourth chapter, verses 4 through 14. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. This is the word of God for the people of God.
when Carl's wife, Maria, fainted on the job for lack of food. They fled that place and managed to get to Philadelphia. So we called the only person in America that he knew, his little pen pal. And he said to me, we can be in Providence in six hours. Can we live with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a heck of a thing to lay on your mother right after dinner. <laughs> there wasn't room in the small apartments where my brother and I lived with our spouses. My mother already had two other people in need that she was boarding. My father died the year before. There were no more bedrooms. But my mother quickly took the phone. Yes, she said, come. It was going to be after midnight when they arrived, but we'd meet them at the train station and bring them home. In those intervening six hours, we scrambled to turn a part of the living room into a semi-private bedroom, and then we all went traipsing off to Providence. There really wasn't any question in any of our minds. We were harboring lawbreakers, but they left their own country under desperate circumstances. They'd been exploited for their labor when they got here, and they were in need. Nobody even thought of turning them away. Nobody suggested we turn them in. They arrived, and we received them with hugs and with tears and with food. Carl and Maria lived with my mother for many years. My mother was constantly on the phone with the offices of Rhode Island Senators trying to get them <coughs> political asylum. She went with them to meetings with immigration officials and was appalled at the things that were said to them. When asylum was finally granted, she lobbied for green cards. She did all the legwork to help them get into master's degree programs at Brown University. Seven years after they received their green cards, we had a big celebration as they became American citizens. Throughout that time, they became family. Their children still call my mother grandma. And in 2003, when Carl took his own life, we mourned as we would for one of our own. Maria and the boys are part of every family gathering. And so in these past few weeks, as debates and demonstrations about illegal immigration surge, I had a point of connection. And I'm talking about it this morning, not because I want to advocate for a particular political policy one way or another, but because I've been hearing things in conversation, both in the media and just generally around town, that have given me cause for concern. Citizenship is a political construct. It's not a moral category. And while we all hope that there's at least some overlap between what is legal and what is moral, history has shown us that either here or abroad, that's not always the case. Carl and Maria came to this country illegally, and we gave them shelter. Was that a sin? Either on our part or on theirs? Maybe, I don't know. But I do know that God has never nudged me to ask for forgiveness for it. And I know that every one of us standing on that plane track, train platform that October night felt that we were making the world a better place. I also know that as a country we're being overwhelmed by the influx. We have very real security concerns with smuggling, with terrorism, 
and with gangs waltzing too easily across our borders. All the proposed solutions on all sides have a huge economic cost. I know there are real problems. And I'm not here to say it ought to be this way or it ought to be that way. Of course, I have my own opinions. But in the past few weeks, I've begun to hear a shift in the language surrounding the debate, away from policy and toward both racism and hatred. And if we don't nip that in the bud, we are headed towards the same kinds of race riots that so stained the soul of our country back in the 60s and the 50s. Unlike citizenship, <coughs> racism and hatred are moral categories. And those responses to any kind of situation are forbidden to those who would take on the name of Christ. As you're learning from doing the daily walk readings, the Bible is full of comings and goings, migrations and conquests. Throughout the Law of Moses, there's a refrain for Israel to remember that their own roots in Egypt were as slaves, and therefore to have compassion on what the Bible calls the alien living in your towns. A concern for the racial purity of the Jews does come up in several places, as well as the condemnation of certain nations. But then, sitting in the midst of all that, is the book of Ruth. Bev read for us before. Ruth is from the condemned country of Moab, and she follows her widowed mother-in-law to Israel. Remembering Moses' command to care for both the alien and the poor, the Israelite Boaz instructs his farm workers to be a little more inefficient in their harvest and to drop enough and to leave enough so that Ruth can walk behind and glean what even the gleaners have left behind to provide for herself and for her family. Long story short, this illegal immigrant from a nation that God has already condemned ends up marrying Boaz, and she becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus. And then in the New Testament, we've got the Samaritans. There's a long history I won't go into, but by Jesus' day, the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other with a perfect hatred. They don't talk, they don't trade, and Jews walk miles and miles around and out of their way to avoid walking through Samaria which divided the nation of Israel. You've got Israel on the top up in Galilee, and Israel on the bottom around Jerusalem, and Samaria smack dab in the middle. They would cross over the Jordan River, go down through the desert, and come back up the huge hill from Jericho up to Jerusalem to avoid touching that awful ground where Samaritans lived. And then there's Jesus. Jesus doesn't walk all the way around. Jesus enters Samaria, and he sits down and he talks with a woman at a well. It's the longest conversation that he has with anyone in all of scripture. He takes a drink from her hand. Jesus does not participate in either the racial hatreds or the religious wars of the time. There were religious battles between Jews and Samaritans, as well as that of race. More than that, in the passages that follow what I read, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that he's the Messiah. He hasn't even told the disciples that yet. She's the first, showing that Jesus doesn't buy into the gender discrimination of his day either. 
If you notice when you read that passage, when the disciples come back, they don't say, my goodness, what's he doing talking to a Samaritan? They say, my goodness, what's he doing talking to a woman? That was even worse. Jesus came to show that God's agenda, even God's very nature, is love. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself. Even love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Whether you see illegal immigrants as your enemies, as your neighbors, as your flesh and blood, or as Christ himself hidden in the least of these, the call of the Christian in all those circumstances is to love them. Now love takes many forms and loving a person doesn't mean that laws can't be enforced. We sometimes have to do that even in families. But it does mean that the cry that I heard on one news report this week of the only good Mexican is a dead Mexican should never, ever, ever, ever come from the lips of a Christian. It does mean that blaming the poor who have literally risked their lives to support a family back south of the border is sliding down a slippery slope toward the hatred of an already abused and exploited people. The blame here lies in many, many places, but I think least of all with them. Blame lies with corrupt governments in many places to our side that don't provide for their people and care only for a greased palm. Blame lies with our own government for not reforming legislation, securing borders, and putting as much pressure on those governments to ourselves to clean up their act as we do on governments who control oil reserves. Blame also lies with private companies who exploit illegal workers, knowing that they have no rights and no recourse, knowing they're desperate, so that they can make a bigger profit and gain market share. Blame lies with those of us who simply seek the cheapest product, no matter who made it or under what conditions. Only after all of them, all of us, are held accountable should we be turning to those whose only intent in coming here is survival. It's time for Christians to wake up. And at this critical time in the history of our nation, the prophetic voice of the Christian faith has to speak out or watch our nation fall into a deserted ruin. I don't care whether you're advocating for offense on the border or for complete amnesty. Good Christians can be on all sides of policy. Where good Christians can't be involved is in hate, either by what we say or what by some, sometimes we don't say or by what we do. This is not about Mexico trying to take over. This is about an impoverished nation living on the border of the richest nation in the world and about how that incredibly rich nation should respond when the poor neighbor would like some of the crumbs that fall from the rich nation's table. It's not about the Spanish language. It's not about Latinos. It's a complex problem that's not going to be solved easily or overnight. Don't let your anger over the problem get dumped on the easy targets of race or ethnicity. And for God's sake, be careful what you say in front of your children. We're a nation of immigrants. As we saw this morning, we don't have, we've got nearly every person in this congregation within about three generations 
in one's own event. Some across our history were dragged here forcibly as slaves. Some were sent here as punishment for crimes. Some sought adventure and wealth. Some fled religious persecution. Some sought political refuge. Millions came because we stuffed this statue in New York Harbor with a poem on its base that reads, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. The huddled masses apparently believed our invitation was sincere, and they came. They're still coming, and I would blame them. If I were them, I'd come too. Jesus didn't teach us to shut out Samaria. He taught us to walk in and to have long conversations and to offer living water. He taught us that there isn't us in them. There's only us. All of us together as a human family, made in the image of God, stewards of God's resources on God's earth. Now is the time for Christians to speak out. Speak for whatever political solution seems best to you. But more importantly, be part of shifting the conversation away from hatred and blame toward any race or nationality or political status. Shift it back to where it belongs, to an honest examination of race and class, wealth and privilege, corruption and greed and political advantage. John Wesley and the early Methodists kept the focus there. And those reforms kept England in the 18th century away from the revolution that was coming. Dare we do the same in our day? Amen. Thanks for subscribing to Spirit Walker Sermons. If you're ever in the area, stop in for worship at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 10 Church Street in Westford, Massachusetts. I'd love to have you stop by my website at www.annrobertson.com, where you can also subscribe to a weekly devotion, which you can receive either as an email or a podcast. I'd love to hear from you via email at ann at annrobertson.com. Thanks again for subscribing, and I hope your week is filled with God's blessings. Music